personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talk Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest, a fellow Chicagoan, uh, Stephanie Drysdale. She is the Vice President of Cyber at Prescient. Hello. Hi, how are you? It's great to have you here. Uh, Thank this, you so this, much. So this is a funny story. Uh, Stephanie, I didn't know you. Uh, and I was actually upset because I'm like, there's this, this wonderful cyber woman in Chicago that I had no idea uh, who it was. <laughs> so uh, Ivan Samoff, who is, um, he's the head of the European Risk Institute. Right. And every year he comes out with a list of kind of the top 20 or top 30 cyber risk communicators. And I always look on that list. I'm happy to have a lot of friends, people that I know on that list. But you were someone I didn't know. And then when I saw <laughs> you and you're from Chicago, I was like, oh, my God, why don't we know each other? So I had to exactly. call you up. I'm like, why don't we know each other? We need to talk. <laughs> I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Ivan is great. He's, you know, he's been extremely helpful I think for so many people, just kind of giving us a, a pool of resources. I mean, there are there are a lot of great compiled lists of cyber experts with various you know leanings and specialties. But yeah, his list is great just to help all of us be like, okay, who else can we learn from? Yeah, it's wonderful. It's it's amazing. Someone in Europe can connect people who are in the United States, actually in the same town. I thought that was funny. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Well, tell me about your journey in, in cyber and how you came to Presence. So, yes, it was it was quite by accident. You know, uh, I was on LinkedIn. I had been in commercial real estate in Kansas City and had recently made a move to Chicago and was, was working in both cities. And um, at that point, had been reached out to by uh, a recruiter, a headhunter, uh, who had asked me if I would be interested in interviewing with this company. And he had said great things about them. And so I, I said I would talk to them and uh, just fell in love with them, what they were doing and, and the people involved and how smart they were and how passionate they were. And uh, initially, cyber wasn't even on anyone's radar at that point so much. So started working with them. And, and as their business grew and evolved as a startup, I grew and evolved with them until we acquired some cyber capabilities and uh, started building out that team and those processes and our capabilities. And it kind of ended up where we are today with uh, a thriving cyber practice and uh, some really, really brilliant people that I get to hang out with every day. So what what is it that got you interested in cyber to begin with? What made you decide this is kind of the way that you want to go with your career? Yeah, so I think that, you know, Prescient having four practices. So we have like a due diligence practice, which is super cool and very important, but not super sexy. Um, you have investigations, which again, really important and everything, but we have people from varied backgrounds there, which I did not share their practitioner background. Um, Intel, again, you know, people from uh, the intelligence community and all of those agencies uh, did not share that background, but, but was still equally, you know, impressed with what they did. Cyber 
where I didn't have the capability, I, because it is such an evolving industry and there's never a, a dull moment and there's always a new fraud, a new scam, a new something. Uh, it was an industry that was really easy to basically get in on a ground floor of just understanding how it plays into other things and to keep up with it. Uh, if you're passionate about learning, you know, if you're passionate about uh, this, just the cyber world and how it interacts with the digital world and the convergence of the two. And uh, that really, really appealed to me is, is how it constantly changed and how it constantly evolved and how I could participate in that without having all of those, those backgrounds. Yeah. I, I follow you on LinkedIn now. Um, I read all your stuff. Uh, one thing that you do that's so unique and I love for you to talk about it. Um, and one reason why I want you to talk about it is because this is something that I've touched on over the years about people. And this is kind of about the risk the cyber risk that people have when they're either high-level executives, high net worth individuals, especially if they're not really cyber savvy, you know, right. um, so people can really take advantage of that. So you do work in that area. Um, uh, and, and before I let you start, I just want to just tell you what I tell people, right? So <laughs> when I talk with people about... Um, cyber threats within organizations, you know, what I see is people, companies, they really push cyber like training and stuff like that on kind of low level individuals. And I'm like, the risk is at the high level, you know, the people who don't want to go to cyber training, the people who have secretaries that are doing things on their calendar for them, you know, those are people I'm, and then too, a lot of times these people, they move up within organizations and instead of their their access getting changed, it just gets added on to. So they just have more access than they should have to stuff. And so I thought you just really hit that point really well with kind of what you're doing and your cyber advisory work. But tell me about this space, what people don't understand about cyber and their risk in that area. Right. So the, the thing that you're referring to that we talk about so much is what we call executive digital protection. It's a, it's a phrase that we coined early on, uh, it started off as an investigation for us with an identity theft where someone had been notified that they owned a couple of vehicles that they were unaware about. So once we looked into it, we found out you know, how that came to be and all the private information and PII that was exposed online uh, for this individual. And from you know, a reverse engineering standpoint, how could that have been prevented? And then basically just started talking to my clients um, some of the most respected CISOs and CSOs in the business and getting them to just help us understand how we can best tailor this for them. And just really looking at uh, the online footprint of someone. And like you said, an executive, you know, is used to just quickly getting things done. The conciseness, the brevity of what decisions they need made quickly is such a pivotal part of what they do, which means there are, you know, there, there's room for error, when people are doing things very quickly and when there's some pressure to, you know, for an admin to just agree. So we would look at what that looked like and, and what their inner circle looked like and what vulnerabilities they were putting out there and, and that others were sharing on their behalf that could be exploited. And then to go into 
a remediation and a removal of that information to restore that privacy and to also let them as a subject know and their security stakeholders know um, where the weaknesses lie that they can fortify um, and that they can anticipate. And that may be something, you know, to your point with it could be reputational. It could be something that they're doing to themselves, that they're putting information out there that could be misused or abused. So just to, to monitor for that, so that we know what's going on and uh, any new breaches, compromises, chatter, any kind of doxing threats, any kind of dark web kind of form discussions that might involve selling of credentials that relate to the company or the executives or their travel. It, it just became very, very important that they had the the finger on the pulse of what was being said about them and how it could be abused and, and weaponized. Well, I love to tell you this story. This is crazy. So um, there, uh, a friend of mine, he's a high, high net worth individual, um, had a brick and mortar business for many years. And he was very shy about getting into kind of the digital domain and stuff. And so once we started looking into maybe having him have things on the internet, we found out that there was uh, another company impersonating his company on the internet. <laughs> yes. Basically, like t- sending business to this other company. That's yes. really the reason why he wanted to start. He's like, well, I'm losing business. And he found out that this person was impersonating them. And actually, we had to contact Facebook. And it was insane because you think places like Google and Facebook, they're just kind of a free utility or something that you use on the internet. But in order to regain his business, you know, take his business name back, he had to send in bank statements and all types of stuff to prove his identity. And it was a mess. Yeah. And it's becoming really, really common in the crypto space right now. So there are a lot of crypto, um, either wallets or exchanges that are impersonating others or um, slandering others. Uh, so it's got to, you got to be really, really careful when you're interacting because there, you don't have protections like a bank, but you're putting in money just the same. So it, yeah, the impersonator accounts are something that throughout our, you know, our processes that we look for just to make sure I had uh, a situation a while back where a retired general had uh, been notified that someone had a Facebook impersonator account about him. Um, that was soliciting funds for a, a specific cause that the cause was not real. You know, the account was not real, but people were associating it with him and therefore trying to rally behind something that, you know, of someone that they respect. So definitely, definitely important to know what's being said and, and how you're being looped into the discussion with or without your consent. I think part of it though, too, is about your identity online. So you have an identity online, whether you want to or not. So whether you want to participate or not, you have an identity. And if you don't want someone to steal your identity, just like you said about this general, if he had, for example, his own social media accounts that had his own logo, something that someone can say, okay, I know I trust this person because this is, this is the way that they present themselves kind of all over the internet. And then I can be sure that they are who they say they are. So I think a lot of cyber criminals are taking advantage of kind of the gaps in people's social 
you know, their media presence, you know, and, and it's tough because I think a lot of people think that they don't have to engage in that way. But in some ways you do, because it's like squatters rights, right? It's like right. the person that gets there first, you know, if, faith, if someone wants to create a face, a, a fake Facebook, you know, business in your name, they can do it, right? Yeah. Uh, if you haven't done it already, they can do it. So tell me a little exactly. bit about that. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of times we'll, we'll have someone who, you know, even initiating the discussions around executive digital protection, just say, I'm not on the internet. I don't really participate in social media. This isn't really my, my jam. I'm not into it. And we'll say, you know, that's great. I'm glad you're not. Um, but part of you not participating leaves the door open for someone else to create an identity for you and impersonate you, um, or to exploit people who, who are maybe gullible. I mean, uh, definitely Putin is, is on social media and, and online right now, but there are social engineered accounts right now that are reaching out to people sending selfies of Putin, trying to solicit funds and, and pretending to be him. If you don't have a strong verified presence on there, and that doesn't mean you have to be active, but if you don't have some type of footprint that's that's verified to be you, that is an opening for someone to create it. Right. Yeah. And then you also get a lot of these scams where people, they take public photos of other people and try to pretend like they're that person. And, you know, there have been these sad stories about people lost all this money because they thought they fell in love with this person. They were on the Internet and they're basically taking photos literally from someone else. They have no idea who it is. and They're kind of impersonating them. So I think it's true. I think the point you're making about having a a digital verifiable presence is really important. And like, I agree. Also, I tell people you don't have to be active, right? So even if you, let's say you have a business, you have a logo, even if you have a social media accounts that you don't access or or you don't, you know, you decide you don't want to use if it, if you have a social media account that has your logo on it, even that will at least tell someone that that's different than maybe something else and someone else is impersonating. So you need something to be able to signal to people that this is you, this is your brand. Because you, I tell people you have a brand whether you want to or not. Exactly. <laughs> so you have to figure out what's the best way to, you know, make sure that you're not impersonating. Like I've seen people lose so much money from, oh, you know, my my your son is sick. He needs this, you know, just silly things that you just wouldn't even think about. Cause I think the average person doesn't think in nefarious and evil ways, but cyber criminals, that's all they do. Like that, that's all they right. do 24 hours a day trying to figure out ways to to um you know manipulate people. They do. Uh, the the social engineering thing is very very much the same as it's always been is just find the weakness and hone in on it, you know, and whether or not that exists when you're, you're pickpocketed in a, in a large public venue or whether or not you're online and someone, you know, pretends to be someone that you trust or someone that you'd like to trust or whatever. It, it's all the same. And it's just people taking advantage of human nature. So if you're aware of those things, you know, part of why, you know, we share so much online and we, we have the discussions like you and I are having today is to just create awareness. And I mean, you and I being in the business, we, we see it often. So we share what we see so that the people that maybe don't see it so often can still benefit uh, and not necessarily fall victim. 
What are you seeing right now in the world in kind of cyber or kind of the privacy or data space that's concerning you? So to say you look and like, oh, I don't like that. What's happening? What, what are your thoughts? There's a lot and, and it's it's a total contradiction of itself, honestly. Uh, obviously, we want to see more privacy and we want to see you know protection of that privacy. Um, but in the same turn, I, I often feel that when we're watching like these, these Senate hearings about social media or secure messaging or, you know, cryptocurrency, that leadership doesn't truly understand what the space is and what it's for, who it benefits, who it hurts, how it hurts them and how to legislate it. I think that some of the blanketed um, goals that, that maybe they have are contrary to what we really need. So I think that, you know, when we talk about demonizing social media companies, people forget that you have settings, you have the ability to opt in and out to some things. Yes, some things are are taken as liberty and those things could be addressed. But there are also things that we take on ourselves. We decide how much we share, you know, whether or not we're putting our location out there, whether or not we're putting our full date of birth, whether or not we're, you know, giving, you know, everyone access to our friends list and, and responding to every message and, and publishing our mobile phone number so that we could be SIM swapped. That's up to us. You know, there's a lot of uh, ownership and agency, I think, that we could be taking that sometimes uh, some people are not. Uh, so I think that's important. Same thing with encryption. Encryption is incredibly important. There are a lot of things that need to be kept private. And when we talk about data protection, encryption is a huge part of that. But yeah, it it does limit the capabilities of law enforcement to access certain communications. So then we have to look at, okay, how do we how do we create protections while still protecting that data and that information? Uh, so I think, yeah, we have a lot of we have a lot of things that we just lack understanding on and maybe the people who are trying to legislate things aren't the best people to speak to this. That's why I love when they bring in the tech experts from the social media companies and for information security, those are the people that really should be setting the tone and setting the stage for this and really setting up why we do what we do and how to do it better. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm I'm very concerned about all of the proposals that are trying to float around around encryption. Uh, so they a lot of these issues often are couched around child protection, which which is really kind of a veiled attempt to diminish diminish encryption or you know security. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people, I, I guess, you know. In the fast-paced digital world, sometimes people they only hear a sound bite, right? right? And they can they make a judgment based on that without looking at the full picture. So I think when they're talking about these proposals, of course, who wouldn't want to protect children? But you know, are you going to unlock every door in the world uh, for that? Like, is that is that the right way to handle that issue? You know, I think you know taking advantage of the naivete of kind of individuals not really having that fulsome discussion is problematic. Then also, as you said, we need to have more people involved in these policy discussions that really understand the technology. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, just like, you know, just like you wouldn't ask a 
lawyer operate on you. You shouldn't have someone who doesn't understand technology trying to really regulate it either. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and right now, I think that with um, CISA doing what they're doing with uh, building this this group of people as advisors and um, all of the, the SEC contributions and people really giving their feedback on what could be put into legislation very soon, I think that's where we need to go. I see a lot of people who are far, far smarter about this than I am weighing in. And those are the people I want to hear from. You know, I, you know, it's great that somebody won a local election and that they are representative of their community. And we're grateful for their, their contribution and their service. However, you know, to your point, we're not asking them to operate on us. That's an analogy I like to use a lot because it's true. It's true. Um, I don't know. This is something that I've seen over the, the you know many years that I've worked in technology. And I feel like it's like, you know, people feel like they understand technology because they have a f- mobile phone or they know how to use <laughs> the Internet. You know, they know how to do a search. And then now they're going to tell you about technology and how you should use it or stuff like that. So I know you're laughing because I'm sure you hear this all the time. It's it's that it's, you know, I mean, you bring up you bring up a like a can of worms with this one. But the main thing that jumps out at me right now is just disinformation, you know, just so many people quoting disinformation and, and really relying on their own Google capabilities to tell you about, you know, medical treatment and about foreign policy and, you know, foreign government. And, you know, from where we sit, we see sourcing, right? Where Where's the source of this article? Where's the source of this author? And oftentimes, you know, people internally will think it's a red or blue issue, you know, it's it's about American politics because we're we, we tend to be very egocentric, right? We think it's all about us. But if we look at the sourcing, it didn't even come from the states. It came from you know Russia or Iran, or it came from some other place where disinformation originates, and it's meant to sow discord, and it works very effectively. You know, more social engineering at play. I think the thing that people need to be wary of not especially in kind of uh, misinformation, disinformation, they're also kind of in their own personal lives. And this is something that cyber criminals really take advantage of. So they want to tell you something that's going to spur you to take an action without really thinking, right? Right. It's the urgency of it that you're not thinking. I think, you know, maybe there's a medical term for this, but I think people get into a fog. They go, you know, when, when some emergency thing happens, you kind of go into a different mode of thinking. It's like not yeah. your normal mode of thinking. And they really take advantage of that. And what they really want you to do is act. So I mm-hmm. always tell people, you know, the three keys, typically if there's some kind of cyber crime or some serious thing happening, it's like you get, you're probably going to get some communication that you didn't ask for, right? right. Out of the blue, they're going to want you to do something fast. Mm-hmm. And they're gonna they're asking you to take a action of some sort. Yes. So if you're not taking an action, they're gonna get fed up with you and go to like the next person. Exactly. That's really those are the three things they want to happen. 
and they want to appeal to your emotions, right? Right. You know, they're not, they're not going to appeal to your logic because your logic is going to be more tempered and it's going to weigh things that urgency is meant to tap into an emotion. So whether it's fear or whether it's, you know, anger is a great motivator on social media, you know, oh, look at this horrible atrocity. Can you believe this happens? Jump and rally behind this cause, share this thing. Um, but, but fear and anger and all of those things are meant to get you to act. Right. I think I had heard this is a recent recent thing that I heard about, and it's a very effective scam. So let's say a kid, let's say a teenager or a young adult uh, is going out of going on a trip, and they put on the uh, social media, "Hey, I'm going to this trip" or whatever, and then you know, based on who they're connected to on their social media, that person who wants to do something bad, they're like, okay, they're connected to their mom, they're connected to their grandma or whatever. So they let's say they contact this person's grandmother and say, Hey, you know, John had an accident, you know, when he was out of town. So, you know, she knows he's out of town. Everybody knows he's out of town. And then you need to wire us this money, you know, to help, help John out. And so that would get this person in a mold to not really be thinking, right. Think, Oh my God, I need to help my grandson or whatever. And they may actually do it. And this is, this is literally what some things I've seen people say recently have happened to them. Right. Those, they do happen. And then sometimes they're coupled with someone reaching out and saying, you know, oh, I lost my Facebook account and I put you as my recovery person. It's going to send you a code. Let me know what that code is. And it's them giving the recovery code for that person's own social media, not for the, the person who's asking for it. Uh, so it's just, you have to be really, really careful. Uh, even if it's someone that you know and trust and they send you something, if it's something suspicious or something you're not aware of, you know, reach out to the person through a trusted channel, like text them, call them, say, I just got this email from you. Is that you? You know, did, did you send this to me? And many times you'll find that the person didn't send you anything or the person themselves is going through some type of um, confusing experience that they're like, well, yeah, but someone told me to, or someone told me to share this. And then that's where you can kind of just to your point, take away that sense of urgency and just kind of pause the process and just kind of step back, use your logic, be taken out of the control of, of whoever is trying to facilitate what they're trying to accomplish and, and reroute it to something that you feel safe with that you trust yourself. Yeah, I agree. So what, what are your thoughts about kind of privacy? You know, we're seeing, obviously, I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're seeing at a, at a federal level, not a lot of action happening, definitely happening at the state level. But do you feel like people are becoming more aware of, of what's private and what's not or trying to protect themselves better? I think it's a, it's a spectrum. And, um, I, th- I think if we're looking at like a, a bit of a graph, we can, we can apply the graph to a lot of things in our life, whether it be vaccines or adopting technology or, you know, caring about privacy is that you've got the early adopters who there are a few of them. They're super quick to jump in on it and weigh in and they have really strong opinions. You've got people that are a little slower to adopt. They wait to see other people get on board. Other people give them a good case for it. And then, then, you know, eventually it will taper off into people that are the very last to get on board, the very last to, you know, realize that this is a a thing. 
Uh, I think privacy is working that way. You've got the people early on that were um, maybe coming off to some as absolutely paranoid. And we were all like, okay, like, listen, you got to calm down. And then, you know, as time went on and social media and, and more information started propagating and breaches and, and data became that gold standard that, that was being breached, then all of a sudden other people are like, wow, I've suffered an identity theft or a, a romance scam or something that you mentioned because of my information being exposed or my work email was hacked into, or my general counsel's emails were intercepted during an, you know, a merger, which is a big deal. So I think that's when other people start getting on board with it. I think that the, the slower adopters, some of them are the people that say, there's nothing we can do about it. Information's out there. You can't change it. They just, they're resolved to defeat. You know, it is what it is. There's nothing that can be done. And I think that while I understand that perspective, I, I don't think that the fatalism of it is really founded. I think we can do things to limit one, what's already been out there, you know, to go back through, put in the time. I, I recommend, you know, my executives, when I talk to people about their, their debriefings, you know, just spend a little time, block out an hour or 30 minutes on a Saturday and be like, okay, this is my Instagram Saturday. I'm going to go back through. I'm going to anonymize my usernames. I'm going to take out any unnecessary information that I don't want there. I'm going to edit out and archive or delete pictures that perhaps overshared a little bit much or include people that I didn't really expressly get their permission to share. I'm going to lock down my privacy settings, those kind of things. And I think we can slowly start to, you know, go forward. And when someone says, Hey, do you want to sign up for this new rewards card? We can be like, maybe not, maybe saving that 10 cents on, on a bag of chips. Isn't really worth my data being in yet another place. You know, maybe it's just not worth it. I love the fact that you address kind of the fatalistic folks who are like, oh, privacy is dead and you can't do anything about it. You know, my thing is maybe it won't help me specifically, but maybe it will help someone in the future. You know, so I think well, and we have to, we have kids, too. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, we have. Well, kids not me, that, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we as a culture, we have kids yes, yes, who are, are growing up in this day and age. They're 10, 11, 12 years old, suffering an identity theft and not realizing that it's happened until they apply, you know, they start filling out their FAFSA and applying for student loans. And then they realize they have horrible credit. Well, how did that happen? Well, they were breached as a 12 year old, but no one was looking at their credit. So like to be able to, as a parent, take that proactive step and lock down their credit early on so that people cannot use their identity if it's somehow breached in, in some other thing so that they can't reuse it elsewhere and, and hurt them going forward. You know, we can be fatalistic for ourselves, but, but not to the point where we're not being protective. Yeah. I don't think, you know, cause a lot of times on the tail end of that is people are like, well, I throw my hands up. I can't do anything. <laughs> so I don't think that's the solution to the problem. Uh, I do think, you know, there are different sort of grades of privacy and people have to decide for themselves kind of what they want to do. I tell people, you know, share with the purpose. Like you said, don't sit, don't, you know, uh, money off a bag of chips is not worth it. Like to give up your, your email address and different things. And also not every, you know, I, I highly recommend people have different email accounts for different things. So 
Like mm-hmm. if you're using a certain email account for your financial stuff, you know, don't use it to sign up for Good coupons. For <laughs> and please, and please don't use your name attributable emails for those, right? You know, your first right. dot last name or first and last name or first initial last name. You know, if those get breached, it's really quick to figure out whose they are, you know, um, and into a more sensitive point. If you are a grown adult while well, within your right as an adult and want to look at adult websites perhaps don't use your name attributable work email for those websites as well. You know, it's blackmail material and that's definitely not something we want. You know, we want people to feel like they can navigate, but do it somewhat safely. And, you know, the caveat is always there that if you don't want someone to find out, don't do it because there's always a way, you know, a part of our investigations, we find things that, you know, people are baffled that someone was able to find a Big dog 23 attributed to someone who made a big threat against someone. They think they're really slick. So just right. know that they're not that <laughs> slick, but at least don't be the low hanging fruit, right? This, this is a losing battle in some ways, but it, it also is a battle worth fighting and criminals are lazy and you want to definitely take advantage of that by not being the low hanging fruit. Let them pick an easier target. That's right. That's right. I love your thoughts about deep, deep fakes. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. A lot of times when people think about deep fakes, they think about them in kind of like the romance area, you know, someone mm-hmm. making like a illicit video of them doing something that you wouldn't want publicized. But right. also we're seeing, obviously it's because of like Ukraine and things like that. There are a lot of fake videos out there about conflicts, you know, or, or propaganda mm-hmm. type videos. So what, just what are your thoughts about that space? I feel like it's really heating up. Yeah. I think um, to kind of touch on our earlier point of misinformation and disinformation, first of all, you have to vet and verify your sources, right? So there's nothing wrong with um, watching or, or enjoying news that maybe is biased toward your own viewpoint where you feel like you can relate to some of the takes on things. But there all should be, you know, also should be a neutrality where your sources aren't politicizing facts and they are checking things. Uh, I think that's really important for us to not just regurgitate and repeat things because they get us riled up, but to know where they come from and know that they have been vetted by credible sources. Um, as far as deep fakes, I think they're getting um, better. You know, the industry as a whole is getting better at creating software that can detect deep fakes. So while us as humans, it's becoming harder for us, the software still is is doing a fairly good job. And like anything else, just a degree of caution, just because you see it and it seems real and it's trying to evoke an emotion from you, don't automatically swallow it. Don't automatically buy into it because, you know, there should always be a degree of, of checking the information that you get. Even credible news sources can be wrong sometimes, but you know, there are a lot of people out there that are devoted like Bellingcat and like, uh, you know, a lot of other organizations that are devoted to trying to make sure that information matches. So if they're showing photos of something, they're going to compare them with live satellite images, aerial photos, does this make sense? You know, does, does this information add up, um, run it through, you know, their software? Are we detecting AI in this software? Are we detecting alterations in the photograph? You know, those things I think are really, really important. So if us as, you know, just consumers of the information, just kind of step back 
and let those pros kind of vet it for us before we take it for face value, I think we're a lot better off. Yeah. So I guess we'll do a shout out to Bellingcat. Uh, this, <laughs> this is a... Um, not a paid promotion, promise. Not, not a paid promotion. No, no. Uh, o- open source intelligence. I actually have a video I'm doing on that. Uh, so people understand sort of what it is and why it's important. I think that that area is going to really, really heat up a lot more. Before, I think it's been more in the shadows. A lot of people don't understand what it is, but I think it's going to become so much more important as we're trying to validate a lot of digital images and videos to come out on the internet. Especially, like you said, I I love the point that you made about emotions, because I guess that's what all these things are trying to do. They're trying to evoke some type of emotion and try to try to make you have either think a certain way or act or behave in a certain way is probably different than you may have done on your own. Yeah, that you know, anything that moves us um, has the the ability to make us act, right? But if we're if we're neutral, if we're tempered, if we're logical, that doesn't have the same motivation, the same power. So you know, anytime your emotions are caught up is is where you really have to like pump the brakes and say, okay, like, what is this, what is this tapping into? And and what of this is real and constant and what of this is evolving and changing and and maybe might look different if I were sitting in a different, you know, chair on this one. That's true. So, so what if, if it were your wish, Stephanie, and we did everything you said, what would be your wish for privacy anywhere in the world, whether it be technology, law, people, human stuff? Um, gosh, that's that, you know, I'm such a live and let live that, that really, I think it's different for different people. Some people just have no wish for privacy. They, they really super need to put themselves out there and do all of that. And other people are are incredibly guarded with their privacy. I, I guess in a perfect world, there would be space for both. There would be opportunities for both to coexist and, um, act accordingly. And that, uh, you know, obviously a world where bad guys didn't exist would be kind of cool, but then we'd all, you know, just be twiddling our thumbs all day long. So (laughs) very true. I agree with that. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this Thanks is for having me. quite illuminating. Uh, we have to hang out sometime when the weather gets nice. We should. <laughs> In Chicago. So that'd I, be great. It's a great city to hang out for sure. I'm, I'm looking it. forward to it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you too.